Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning. For those that uh, might not have met me before, I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the senior pastor here as the kids are taken off for Sunday school. Um, let me just welcome those of you that might be new or visiting. Um, we would love to get to know you. If you are new uh, and checking us out for the first time, there is a card in the seat pocket in front of you with a QR code that you can scan to let us know how we can connect with you. Otherwise, if you want to fill it out and bring it back to the, the hello station in the back, we have a welcome gift for you. Um, but we are glad you are here joining us in worship this morning. And um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 as we continue this series through the Psalms called Israel's Playlist, talking about the, the variety of worship and music that was in the Psalms and how that built up the Israelite community and how that can build us up today. And we'll be in Psalm 51. I'm actually going to be all over the place, uh, not just in Psalm 51, uh, but you can keep your finger there as kind of our landing spot where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But I've also shared, I think, uh, if you've been around for a while, that I'm a big fan of podcasts. And one in particular came up in my mind as I was reading through this psalm and preparing for this morning. And it's a, it's a podcast called Apologetical. That's the title of the episode. It's by Radiolab. And it was talking about I'm sorry laws, which wasn't even a thing I knew existed. But apparently 38 states, Minnesota is not one of them, 38 states have I'm sorry legislation. And it's legislation that protects you if you say, I'm sorry. So if you get in a car accident or you do something at work that causes harm to others, the, the, the laws on the books protect you that if you go up to somebody after a car accident and say, hey, I am so sorry, that admission of sorry cannot be used against you as an admission of guilt in a court of law. That's what those laws, I didn't even know this was a thing. Right? I didn't even know that these, and, and so they've, they've passed these laws, and, and the history of it is fascinating. Basically, a legislator in um, Massachusetts lost a family member and just wanted an apology and found out that that person couldn't apologize for risk of, of court proceedings. And so instead, he said, hey, I want people to feel like they can apologize. So he did this big push and got this law passed, and it passed in a bunch of other spots. Um, but what fascinated me is that in those states where they've passed that, there's been kind of a reversal, where now people and corporations specifically see this protection as a cost-saving measure. So now that they know they can apologize and it can't be used against them in a court of law, when they have done something wrong and they know there's a chance of litigation, in those states they are quick to come to you and apologize because you are less likely to sue. And, and that kind of struck me as kind of an uncomfortable spot to sit. Because that's not what an apology is supposed to be about. An apology is not supposed to be this way that you mitigate your losses, that you can lessen the consequences. That's, that's not what an apology is about. An apology is, is supposed to be, as Christians we know, this moment where you go and you, you, you lay yourself vulnerable before the person that you've harmed and seek to make it right. And here, these laws that were put in place to try and protect people from doing that have turned into a cost savings measure for some. And, and it's an odd spot to be in our society where we have this tension. 
And I think we all have experienced it at some level. We know what a false apology is. We've all either given or received those false apologies. I'm sorry you feel that way, right? Or I am sorry that that happened in that way. Or my personal favorite, I'm sorry, but you don't understand my situation. We know what a, fa- a false apology is and we know what a forced apology is. All of us have said it, maybe when we were little, maybe we don't want to admit how old we were when we said it, but fine, I'm sorry, are you happy now? That's not really what an apology is. And as we look at Psalm 51, we're gonna be talking about apologies and repentance because Psalm 51 is a penitential psalm, which is a big fancy word that means I'm sorry. A penitential psalm. It's the same root that we get for penitentiary or penance. This idea of remorse and, and consequences for actions. Penitentiary psalm. And there are seven penitential psalms. We've actually looked at one already. Our first week in Israel's playlist, we looked at Psalm 32, but we talked about that one, how it was a masculine, a wise saying. Well, Psalm 51 is also one of these penitential psalms, and it's more clearly penitential, which is why I've chosen to focus on that aspect of it this morning. But also, if you're looking for some, Psalm 6, 32, which I already stated, 38, 51, which we're doing this morning, 102, 130, and 143. Just throwing those out there. If anybody feels the need to read all the penitential psalms, there they are. But it's a psalm of individual lament. And the idea of these psalms is not that we would focus on the sin that caused it, or that somehow in reading it, we are condoning that behavior, or that it's only relevant to us if we've done the exact same behavior. The idea of these psalms, even though they're individual lament, is that we can look at them and reevaluate our own lives in light of them. That even if we haven't gone through the exact same situation, we've gone through similar enough circumstances. And generally, the psalmist writes it in a way that doesn't focus on what happened. But we do occasionally get a glimpse, and this one is no different. We can see as we get into it, the psalm is tied to a historic event, and that's in our scripture this morning, and it starts with this line. For the director of music, a psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we get a very specific timestamp on this one. It's a very specific moment in time that David wrote this. Now, if you didn't know that was there, you might piece that together through the psalm, but you might not. Because the psalm doesn't go into all the details. And so in case you haven't heard that story or are unaware, I'm going to briefly summarize and bring us to the point where Nathan confronts David. And and I think that's going to kind of shed some light on this psalm for us this morning. But if you don't know the story, David is king of Israel. And it says in the spring of the year when kings went off to war, which is an interesting concept, that in the spring of the year, the kings would just go off to war. Um, But in the spring of the year, when the kings went off to war, David didn't. In pride, he stayed back. And, and he sends his men and his, his troops and his generals and leadership officers all out. They go off to war and David stays behind. And as he's staying behind in pride, he notices a beautiful woman. He has an affair with that beautiful woman and she comes to him expecting a child. She's pregnant. And David, instead of dealing with the sins he's already committed of pride, of adultery, he tries to cover it up. He invites that woman's husband, who is in the military, one of his officers to come back. 
He says, go home, spend some time with your wife, with the idea being that this will sweep it under the rug. This will hide what has happened. I'll be able to, you know, claim it's his child. And he doesn't comply. The, the officer, Uriah, has more integrity. It says, if my people, my soldiers are off in battle, I will not go home and, and spend time with my family. And David's response to this is murder. He sends Uriah off with a message in his hand for Uriah's commanding officer that says, put Uriah in a dangerous spot, push forward, and then pull back, leaving Uriah behind. And Uriah is killed. And David takes Bathsheba into his house as his wife, thinking all is covered. It's all swept under the rug. It's all taken care of. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes and meets David and tells him a story of a man and sheep, about a man who has a lot of sheep stealing a man who has only one sheep and stealing his one and only sheep and killing it as a meal for his guests. And that's where I want to pick up because that is when Nathan, as our psalm says, confronted David And it's that interaction that's going to lead into our psalm and give us some lens to perceive this psalm through. And so I want to pick it up there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And this psalm has a focus on repentance. And for good reason, David has committed sin and David hasn't committed a sin. You know, we focus on the adultery and we focus on the murder and both of those are awful sins and I'm not condoning them in any way. But it's more complicated than that because David's sin is more complicated than that. And I think if I'm honest with you and if you're honest with yourself, oftentimes our sin is more complicated than any one thing. We find ourselves going down this journey. We've all told a lie that turns into another lie that turns into another lie. We go down this journey where one thing leads to another and that's where David finds himself. It started with this arrogance of, I don't need to do what I'm called to do. I'm gonna stay back here and send everybody else to do the dirty work, which isn't what he was called to as king. It's a complicated journey where one thing leads to another. And it may take us some effort to dig down in our own life to figure out what's the root that is really causing this. That moment when you snap at your spouse or your kids or respond in anger at work might not be motivated by what that person did to you in that moment. And we need to take that energy to dig down and go, what is the root that is causing this. Because if we don't deal with that root and dig it out, we're just gonna find ourselves doing it again and again and again and again. And I think we can all relate to David in the idea that sometimes our own sin, we like to view it as a mistake we made, but when somebody else has sinned against us, it's an egregious and intentional error on their part. They tried to hurt me. Mine was a mistake. And Nathan is confronting this, and it's out of this realization that David has that he writes this psalm. And so with that idea in mind, let's read this morning our psalm from Psalm 51. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so David is not highlighting in this psalm his sin. You'll notice that there's no listing of the wrongs. He doesn't go through and say, you know, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. He's not highlighting that. Again, the idea is that in this psalm, we who have gone through different, though not identical circumstances can relate. This psalm should be able to guide us in our own ideology of what repentance is. And so that's where I want us to spend time this morning. I want us to look at this psalm and see four reminders of what repentance is and one reminder of what repentance is not as David lays out his repentance. And those four reminders of what it is and one that it is not should guide us to evaluate our own sins and repentance and how we respond to God and the Holy Spirit and to the conviction of sin. And the first lesson, the first reminder is that repentance is humility. That's the first step. The first step in repentance is humility, is realizing that we have sin that needs confessing, that requires humility on our part. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. He's a man after God's own heart. And yet we can see that David committed an entire list of sins just like any of us. So in other words, to be somebody after God's own heart does not require us to be perfect because if David can be a man after God's own heart and commit murder and adultery and a whole bunch of other sins, then isn't there hope for the rest of us? And it starts with this. It starts with humility because that, to me, is one of the big distinctions between David, who is a man after God's own heart, and Saul, who also committed a whole bunch of sins, who was also king of Israel, but was not. And in fact, that verse where it talks about David being a man after God's own heart comes just a few verses after Saul offers a sacrifice 
on an altar that he was not supposed to do. And he gets confronted. And Saul makes an offering on that altar and Samuel comes and confronts him and he gives this reply. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And we can see in there the distinction between humility and the false apology, the humility of David that says, when Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. And David says, I have sinned. Time out. I need to step back in humility. And Saul, who gives the false apology, yeah, but you don't understand. The people were scattering and the Philistines were coming and you were late. I mean, come on, Samuel, show up on time and I won't be forced to do these things for you. We see the distinction here, the distinction of humility, that acknowledgement of sin is necessary for restoration. We have to acknowledge it. That takes humility to go, I have sinned, to stand up and say, I have sinned, I've made a mistake, I have lied, I have gotten angry, I have hurt people, requires humility. And along with humility in repentance is the humility of self. In our Psalm, look at where David's focus is. David's focus is not on his own merit. He doesn't even point out that he has acknowledged his sin and therefore deserving of repentance. That is not the basis of it. A part of acknowledging our sin is acknowledging that we are broken human beings and God is not. And that's his focus. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. That's the part of humility, is acknowledging who we are and who we are not. We are not God. We are not the ones who can grant that kind of forgiveness. Only God can. And whenever we step into that role thinking that I can earn this myself, we are not acknowledging that humility we need before God. So repentance requires humility. And so my challenge to you this morning is, where is a spot where maybe in repentance you need to step into humility? Where is that spot where all along your apologies to people around you and to God have been, yeah, but apologies. You don't understand what it's like to be me. Where do we need to step into that humility and acknowledge where we stand? And our second reminder is this, repentance is lifelong and intentional. For David, repentance is lifelong. This is not a one-time occurrence. And again, I think the contrast between Saul and David is significant. Saul committed a lot of sins too. And when Saul started out as king, he started out pretty good. He was humble. He was repentant. There were times where he got confronted and he did confess. But we see a change in him over time where Saul begins to harden his heart towards God and go, yeah, but I'm king. And when the lowly priest shows up late, I can just step in because I am king. And for David, we see that repentance is lifelong and intentional. And as believers, we believe that when you confess your sins and you, you, you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you come into that spot where you are justified. Your sin is washed away, but we still have this thing where we have to continue to pursue God our entire life. We don't immediately stop making mistakes. We still have to pursue this ongoing act of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what discipleship is, is constantly pursuing Jesus. We see that in the disciples. 
how over time they change. And, and we see Peter go from being a, a loud blowhard to somebody who is now leading the church, but then later somebody who gets confronted by Paul and has to confess and repent again. It is a lifelong process. It's not a one and done thing. It's lifelong and it is intentional. And our psalmist puts it this way, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. For David, his sin he saw as something that happened prior to his birth. He had this lifelong compunction to sin. But his confession of depravity, his confession that sin existed in his life all along is not an excuse for his behavior. He doesn't go, hey, I was sinful at birth, so you know, what can you expect? But he does see it as something he needs to work through. It's not an excuse. We are sinners by choice, even if we are sinners at birth. I think all of us in this room can admit that we have made a mistake on our own, and whether or not we were sinners at birth, we have plenty to take responsibility for in our own life. And for us as believers, the pursuit of God is a lifelong pursuit. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And we'll, we'll take this a step further in a little bit when we talk about uh, what worship and what repentance is in, in regard to sacrifice and, and all this kind of stuff. I'm not saying that and neither is our psalm, or the, the author of Philippians saying that um, somehow grace is on us to fulfill. Grace is from God alone, through faith alone. But we have to continue to pursue him all the way through our life. We all need to grow and develop. It is lifelong and intentional. So where have we grown lazy in our spiritual formation? Where have we treated God's grace as something that is a one and done thing that we don't need to worry about it anymore? You know, yeah, well, I'm a sinner. What do you expect? I have my salvation, therefore I am good to go. We are called to a lifelong walk as disciples, and that requires intentionality. So not only is it lifelong, we have to be intentional with it. We can't go about it in a haphazard way. As with any relationship, our spiritual relationship with God requires effort, and it requires us to put intention into it. Pick any friend relationship you have, any romantic relation, any, any family relationship you have. If you sit there and don't put any energy into it, it atrophies over time. Our spiritual walk is the same. We have to be intentional with it. It's not just going to happen. And repentance as well is intentional. If we know we have done wrong, and we know we have a lifetime of pursuit of godliness before us, but we never take action on it, we might as well have not known. We have to be intentional with it. We have to step in when we have done wrong, if we know it's out there and go, well, maybe they'll forget. Maybe they didn't notice. Imagine doing that with God. Maybe he'll forget. God doesn't forget. Maybe he won't notice. Well, God sees all. We have to be intentional with our repentance. We can't sit there and hope like David did to just sweep it under the rug. Maybe I can hide it. We have to be intentional. Imagine, if you will, and uh, my parents are here this morning and they don't have to imagine this happened. Um, but imagine, if you will, that I borrowed your car and I wrecked it multiple times. 
And I came to you and said, yes, sorry about that, I wrecked it. But I made no intentional effort to try and rectify the relationship. Can I borrow your car again? Not many of you in this room would give me that car. We acknowledge that there takes intentionality to rebuild a relationship when damage has been done. We can't just walk away. And that is the imagery here in our passage in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And that's an image. The hyssop plant was a long leafy branch. If you read in Exodus 12, when the Exodus happened and they were to paint blood for the first Passover on their door, hyssop is the plant they're supposed to go and get to paint the blood on their door. So David's imagery, his language here is about intentionality. Cleanse me with hyssop. He's talking about the steps he would have to go through in repentance like they did in the Passover. Hyssop also shows up in Leviticus and Numbers in talking about, or in, in Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, talking about the, the cleansing after a defiling skin disease. If you had a skin disease that made you impure and unable to participate in worship for a while, you had to go and take hyssop as part of your cleansing practice. It took intentionality. So David's imagery here is about taking steps to pursue and make it right. God, I know that I have wronged you and it takes steps for me to, to correct that. So I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to take that intentionality. I'm going to be aware of this. And why do we need to be intentional? And why do we have to do this lifelong? And why do we need this humility? Because our third reminder is this, that repentance is relational. Repentance is a relational idea. It's all about the relationship. God is a relational God. His restoration, his justification, his glorification, all of these theological terms are about our relationship with him. It's about him making us right, us gaining right standing with God, us gaining uh, more and more the image of God in ourselves. It's all relational language. These aren't just theological terms that we can memorize and learn a verse about and be done with. It's about the relationship we have with our God and about bringing it back to where it was intended to be. It's relational terminology. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at all of that language. That's all relational language. Reconciliation is about relationship dynamics. Ambassadors back then were relational people. Now we see ambassadors as people who are kind of, dare I say, puppets of the policies from the home country. But if you think back to when this was written, and even much, much more recently in our history before text message and email and international phone calling and telegrams, if you go back, when we sent Benjamin Franklin to France as our ambassador, he was authorized to speak on behalf of the people of the United States, completely cut off from them. And that's the image we get here of ambassadors. It's relational. 
We are called to be ambassadors of what? Of reconciliation. That takes repentance, that takes humility, that takes that lifelong intentionality to reconcile us to each other and other people to God. We are ambassadors of that. We bring that message with us. This is relational and it's deeply personal. We cannot repair broken relationships if we cannot repent. Repentance at its core is a relationship rebuilding act. Think of somebody that you have hurt and think of that moment when you went in true repentance and went to them in humility and apologized. Think about how much that can fix that broken relationship. Even if they don't take it, even if they don't hear it, even if they don't acknowledge maybe the part they played, it still takes steps towards rebuilding that relationship. Repentance is deeply relational. And, and David acknowledges that in the psalm as well, verses 13 and 14. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. When we look at our relationship with God and we look at how much God has healed in us through his grace for our sin and how much we have been forgiven, it should be natural for us to spread that message. It should be natural for us to also then forgive somebody who hurts us because they have not hurt us as deeply as our sin has hurt God. And so we need to be ministers of reconciliation. And David is acknowledging the bloodshed, the murder he committed as he's talking about how he's gonna teach transgressors God's ways. It is intensely relational. And there are many other verses I could cite here that get at this, but I wanna read one more. From Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 22. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being pulled, built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. When we seek repentance from God and we seek repentance from others and we pursue God together like two sides of a triangle, as we go towards God, we should naturally be drawn closer together as a body, as a community, to be able to set aside those petty differences because we know how much we have been forgiven. And we know we are in the same ministry of reconciliation to bring people towards God, which should naturally bring us closer together as well. That's the image we get. We are to be one body. It is intensely relational. But David moves on and warns us what repentance is not. Repentance is not a task. It is not a to-do list. It is not a chore. It is not an obligation that we have to do just to satisfy some quota. It is not a task. Verses 16 and 17. 
You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And our author is not saying that the sacrificial system is irrelevant or unnecessary. That the system, you know, he just talked about hyssop. He's not saying, never mind, doesn't matter. Any more than Paul is when he critiques the law in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. The problem is that anytime we try and supplant a relationship with God with religion, we fall short. When we think that just going through these motions will satisfy it, but we don't reconcile ourselves relationally with God, we fall short. It's pointless to show up and just sacrifice a goat, but you don't really feel that humility. You don't really feel that need to reconcile with God. You might as well not do it. And the same is true with us. When we think that I can go to somebody and say, yeah, sorry. Again, we've all heard that. Yeah, sorry. Are you happy now? And, and sometimes we have that attitude with God. Okay, Sorry. That's not what God wants. He wants that internal change. He doesn't want us to be task-oriented. He doesn't want us to replace that relationship with religious ritual. As one theologian puts it, the whole Bible is united in the idea that sacrificial ritual in and of itself does not affect restoration of relationship with God. Rather, the sacrifice of an animal must reflect a heartfelt acknowledgement that the sinner deserves the death experienced by the animal. Scripture is unanimous on that. It's about our heart. Yes, we are called to be intentional. Yes, we are called, but it's about our heart. If we don't want it in our heart, we might as well not do it. So a life of true repentance, hold repentance as a sacred act. Because we know the formless apology. We've all experienced it. And if we know it, and we can see through that empty apology, how much more can God? That when we are coming just as a token ritual to satisfy, to try and just satisfy our conscience so we can move on as unchanged as possible, God can see right through it. And so we need to be honest in our repentance, and we need to be honest in our repentance because repentance is communal. It impacts everybody around us. It doesn't just impact us. Repentance is communal because all of our sin, whether we like to admit it or not, and we don't like to admit it. In our Western individualized society, we like to think that my sin only affects me. You know, one of the, one of the mantras we hear again and again in our world is, but it's not hurting anybody else as justification for doing whatever people want. But it doesn't hurt anybody else. And this tells us it does in ways that we might not even understand that repentance is communal, it impacts those around us. How many of us have been hurt by somebody and they didn't even know it? It happens all the time. And so our repentance and our sin, if, it, if our sin impacts the entire community, then so too will our repentance. It will communally impact our world. Verses 18 and 19, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now there's a lot of uh, biblical historians and theologians who think these verses may have been added later. In other words, they might not have been written by David. We don't know whether that's true or not. They have a lot of reasons for thinking that, but they tend to place those as an add-on during the exile, which I think is an interesting idea 
to think about that here they are years after David and they're going back and looking at his prayer of repentance and going, God, we need to repent as a community. We need to repent because our sin has driven us as a community into this exile. And until we repent as a community, we won't be able to come back. And we, want you, we know you want to prosper us as your followers. We know you want us to be able to offer sacrifices again. And until we repent, that's not gonna happen. And it affects all of us. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, acknowledges this. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah in exile. And in Jeremiah, there is a prophecy that they will come back when they repent. And he counts up the number of years needed and he realizes they're basically there. And he realizes that what they're missing is the repentance piece. And in Daniel 9, we read this. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. So Daniel puts himself in, even though he wasn't in Israel when they rebelled. He wasn't a prince of Israel when they rebelled. He wasn't the, the person who rejected the prophets but he still puts himself in that role as the community person and says, God, we as a community have sinned. And it might not have been me, but it is we. And repentance is deeply communal. And when we repent individually, it affects the community. And when we as a community sin, we are called to step into that and repent as well. So I just wanna challenge us this morning as we think about repentance, where are some spots where maybe we haven't stepped in with that intentionality that we need or we haven't stepped in in that community role because we've been able to step back and say, it wasn't me specifically. Where have we not been humble? Where have we not pursued this with a lifelong pursuit? Where have we seen this as a chore or a task instead of the sacred act that it is? Where do we, in light of Psalm 51, need to reevaluate our view of repentance? And I don't know, maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to. Maybe you need to spend some time with God. But where do we need to be a little bit more penitential and show that remorse and reconcile ourselves to God so that we can reconcile others as well? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you have brought about reconciliation, God, and I thank you that you have called us to the same ministry. So Lord, as we evaluate repentance, God, may we step into it with boldness. God, not as something that we are proud of our sin, but God, as people who are proud to be able to say that we are forgiven. God, that we would pursue you with a lifelong tenacity and in humility. And Lord, that we as a community would confess the sins we have committed, God, that you would forgive us as a community, not only here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church, but God, in our community of Watertown, in our state of Minnesota, in our country, in our world, God, we want to stand in the gap for those that don't know you. So God, we are pursuing you and ask that you would forgive us. I pray this in your name, amen. Our benediction this morning from Romans 15, verses five and six. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.